My name is Allison Deutsch. I'm a junior research fellow here in the IAS. Together with Peter Leary, we've organized this seminar series that begins tonight. Um, these will occur roughly every two weeks on Wednesdays from 5 to 7 p.m. Roughly, there are some exceptions. Um, for the series, we're inviting scholars from a range of disciplines to discuss how their research engages questions of vulnerability, what the concept means to them, in what ways it's useful, in what ways it's problematic, um, how vulnerability is figured and constructed. We'll consider the relationship between vulnerability and precarity and risk, as well as resistance and empowerment. Our next seminar is two weeks from today on the 31st of January, when we'll welcome Professor Jonathan Herring from the University of Oxford, who will be discussing vulnerability and the law. But today we're especially, uh, especially delighted to have Professor Stephen Connor with us. Um, there are so many of his aspects, so many aspects of his work that we felt would make him an ideal interlocutor. As we were thinking about the etymology of the term vulnerability, we thought about how Professor Connor um, does this kind of work with etymology in his own writing. As we were discussing vulnerability and the boundaries of fragile, permeable bodies, we thought about his work on skin and the senses. When we were discussing why vulnerability is such a key concept right now, we thought of his work on rage and anxiety. But today, he'll address our theme through his current interest in cultural phenomenologies of knowing. Professor Connor is Grace II Professor of English and Fellow of Peter House in the University of Cambridge. From October 2018, he'll be the Director of Cambridge's Center for Research in Arts, Social Sciences, and Humanities, with the acronym CRASH. He's a writer, critic, and broadcaster who's published books on many topics, including Dickens, Beckett, Joyce, Value, Ventriloquism, Skin, Flies, and Air. His most recent books are Beyond Words, Sobbing, Humming, and Other Vocalizations from 2014. Beckett, Modernism, and the Material Imagination, also from 2014. Living by Numbers and Defense of Quantity from 2016. And Dream Machines from 2017. His book, The Madness of Knowledge, will appear in 2018. His website, stephenconnor.com, includes texts of talks and lectures, broadcasts, unpublished work and work in progress, as well as, I must say, a hilariously irreverent bio that will entertain you far more than the one that I have just offered. So please thank me in joining Professor Connor tonight. Thank you so much, Alison. Um, I'm, I have a more whispery kind of delivery than um, would normally be the case. Um, and when it comes back, there will be a URL um, under the title of the talk, which is where, if for whatever reason you want to relive the whole ghastly experience, um, where you can see the text of the talk. It's also, as you can see, um, being recorded in Viva Voce. Um, more than a quarter of a century ago, I was discussing with Barbara Hardy in Birkbeck, over there, how we might distribute some funding that had become available for student scholarships. When you are closer to 100 years of age than you are to 20, you can toss off phrases like a quarter of a century ago. It's an unexpected pleasure. Um, <clears throat> so I suggested various ways in which we might go about evaluating the applicant's work um, and was brought up short when Barbara said, why give all the money to the clever ones? They get everything anyway. Um, so I'll be thinking, in a, in a sense, I've been, I've been thinking about this on and off for about 25 years since she said it. Um, I'm wondering why I felt so ashamed to have that said to me. 
Um, and I'll be wondering what might be wrong with what Nietzsche calls die Erkenner, the would-be knowers, or as we might translate it, those in the know, inheriting the earth. There are <clears throat> a few categories that recur in uh, contumelics, or the long history of human mockery and insult. Contumelics, a term um, I just made up. There is sexual insult, of course, encompassing the mocking of the cuckold and the deviant. And this often overlaps with the mockery of physical disability or deformity. In previous eras, religious insult would have been much more potent too, sometimes overlapping with racial insult, the power of which has been magnified by contemporary deprecation. <clears throat> and these categories often combine and overlap, a particularly telling one being the word bugger, which derives from bulgar, a name given to a set of heretics believed to come from Bulgaria in the 11th century who were suspected of engaging in forbidden sexual practices. Actually, heresy and sexual perversion were frequently closely associated. The association of religious with sexual irregularity surviving in the idea of the missionary position. But maybe the most universal and pervasive category of insult is the mockery of the unintelligent or mentally incapable, whether the stupid or the mad. Those two categories so often and so mysteriously associated. The impulse to cognitive insult seems so inveterate that words designed specifically to be technical or without value judgments quickly become derogatory such as moron, which met with the approval of the American Association for the Study of the Feeble-Minded in 1910, precisely because at that time it didn't have any negative overtones, but which has since become the most vehement of jeers. In this respect, it follows the word idiot, which in Greek and Latin was a term simply denoting a private individual, and also anticipates the fate of retard, which was in use among educational psychologists from around 1909, but by the 1960s had passed out of scientific and fully into popular use. <clears throat> Perhaps, indeed, the accusation of stupidity is to be regarded as a kind of meta-insult. For the words for stupidity or madness are often words which indicate a person who is actually reduced to the condition of an object or a category, a signified rather than one capable themselves of signifying. And in the use of the word, that debasement is actually performed. To be the target of what is rather percipiently called abuse is actually simply to be a kind of utensil or object of use as opposed to being a user of language. What we can call epistemic insult therefore puts its object outside the company of language users, though the pain of the insult, of course, depends upon the target appreciating perfectly well the import of what they're being called. There would be no point in calling someone who was genuinely stupid, stupid. It's very common for stupidity to be conceived as a kind of insensibility that's imagined to reduce the non-knower or slow learner to some dense, dull, impenetrable and uniformly unresponsive state of matter, would 
and excrement, our favoured items, shit for brains. But also, a little surprisingly, is air. Though what these states of matter seem to have in common is that they lack sharpness, distinction or individuality. So we have blockhead, clot, clod, numbskull and stupidity as being slow, dull, dim, obtuse and so on. To be blockish, dense or dull-witted, a dolt or a clodpole is a form of existence as debased and undifferentiated as mud. It's to be as thick as a brick, or two short planks, or as Falstaff says of Poins in Henry IV, um, part two, his wits as thick as Tewkesbury mustard. There's no more conceit in him than is in a mallet. Not to know is no longer, or perhaps not even yet, to be homo sapiens. To be stupid is to be stupefied, stunned, or senseless, not only without knowledge, but for that reason, without the knowledge of feeling. This one of the most habitual forms of stupid insensitivity that human beings can display. The play of the word sense between the sensible and the intelligible, as they were called in the medieval period, allows one to think of being witless as being without being, without the capacity to feel anything very much at all. John Donne says in his essay, The True Character of the Dunce, that he hath a soul drowned in a lump of flesh. If there's a powerful set of fantasy desires involved in the idea of possessing knowledge and wisdom, there's a countervailing set of dreads and amusements furnished by the idea of the stupid and its embodiment in the one supposed not to know. Indeed, not knowing is more than ignorance. It's seen as witless, irrationality, and some, and so comes close, as I've suggested, to a kind of madness or un, unbeing. In the 17th century, stupid could actually mean paralysed. In fact, the unvarying stupidity of the ways in which the stupor or days of ignorance is conceived or unable to be conceived as a form of full human existence, is remarkable <clears throat> and telling. The imagination of stupidity is, we may say, as thrombotic as what it, ima as what it imagines, or in fact fails to imagine. The logic involved seems to be that only intelligence gives the possibility both of being distinct from the material world and of being distinguishable from other beings. To have identity is to be able to be the same, idem, as yourself from moment to moment. To be an idiot, originally meant, as I've said before, to be set apart as a private individual, but its root is actually the same word as idem, id, it, as though the idiot were no more than a kind of emptily iterated itness, rather than a genuine existing, standing out. To be foolish is therefore to be ultimately indistinguishable from the world in general, in a reversal perhaps of the famous Freudian formula, wo ich war, soll es werden, where I was, there shall it be. Perhaps it's this kind of attribution which is really the mark of our dullness about unknowing or 
different modes of knowing, since actually states of unknowing, infancy, for example, or dementia, can often, as we know, be accompanied by considerable sprightliness, painfully agitated states of confusion, or other kinds of sound and fury. <clears throat> In fact, um, we're going to see that knowledge doesn't always seem quite to know what it's about in its attributions of stupidity. The attribution of stupidity is one of the most powerful forms, I think, in which human sociability cements itself. Human beings are held together not by ideas of identity, because us and them thematics are the business as usual of all species and conspecifics. It's not who you are, that matters, or even who you know. It's what is known of what you know. Human beings are held together by the second natures of their assumed knowledge, that is, the shared ideas that they have about their ideas, and more generally, the turbulent torrent of fears, dreads, fantasies, projections, and identifications that attach to the imago or phantasmal ideal of knowledge, and what Lacan calls the sujet supposé savoir, the subject supposed to know. <coughs> human beings become and try to remain human through the process of recognition, taken here not as the confirmation of what you are, but more literally, recognition, as the reverberation or echolalia of the social cogito, what we suppose each other to know, and the sujet supposé savoir we suppose each other to be. Suppose is actually practically the same word as the word subject. That's why we so often use words with a noetic basis, like recognition or acknowledgement, to describe social solidarity effects. For some time, I've been calling this array of affects relating to knowledge by the admittedly slightly uncomely term epistemopathy, uh, and it's been too long for me to give it up now, so you'll hear a bit more of that term. Where epistemology concerns itself with what we can know about knowledge, epistemopathy is concerned with what we feel about knowledge. My eagerly unawaited book, The Madness of Knowledge, of which uh, these paragraphs may serve as an inoculating dose, offers a sketch of the kinds of thing that the shadow discipline of epistemopathology might get up to. Standing in an institution such as this and participating in this symbolic action of suppositious knowledge concentration and dispersal, we are, needless to say, situated at the very omphalos of these lines of epistemopathic force. But maybe, in another sense, it's not the supposed knowledge in common of our likes, but the assumed stupidity of our imagined unfellows that is the black hole around which these lines swirl. The imagination and deployment of the idea of stupidity, or of the unknowing, <clears throat> is part of the densely woven fabric of epistemophoric affinities, acknowledgements, approaches, abjurings, and antagonisms that make up so much of social life. 
But the history of stupidity mockery suggests something else, perhaps a little more unexpected. Namely, the strange and unpredictable potency of shame. When you shame somebody, you take a huge risk because unless you see to it that they actually die of shame, which is possible, but generally contraindicated since the purpose of shaming people is to keep them on display in their emblematically shamed condition, when you shame somebody, you inevitably start to teach them how to live in shame. Shaming people is, perhaps rather surprisingly, like bombing cities. You can certainly annihilate your enemy by bombing cities, but you can't defeat them for a reason that was wisely articulated by the head of the US Air Force operations ahead of the shock and awe campaign in Iraq in 2003. For you can only completely defeat an enemy if you only partially defeat them. That is, you leave enough of the fabric of their communications and self-government intact for them to form a collective agreement to give in. There is, as far as I know, no anthropology of the intricate human action of, of surrendering, or if there is, I should certainly like to know about it. Shaming often involves saying to somebody, you should be ashamed of yourself. But being shamed is not at all the same as being ashamed. Shaming is a transitive operation performed by a subject upon an object, an operation that produces the subject-object polarity that permits it to operate in the so-called first place. But the aim of shaming is to produce a particular form of objectified subjectivity, self-objectifying subjectivity, in which one is not merely given shame, but induced to give oneself to it. You can be pronounced guilty by some external authority. Indeed, that's probably the only form that guilt can take. But nobody can pronounce you ashamed, except, often wordlessly, yourself. Being ashamed is the most intimate possible self-relation of self-alienation and the most bottomlessly complex kind of reflexivity that can arise in humans whose name, which implicates them in humus, the earth, and humility, suggests that it may even be at the heart of human self-definition. As I once saw cause to remark in another essay on shame, you cannot live in shame, but until you've been shamed, you've never lived. Shame can also <clears throat> be lifted into a kind of principle, even a sort of self-sustaining shamelessness. Being ashamed can therefore come surprisingly close to being avenged. This is illustrable from the history of religion, which has been viewed from one aspect, a continuous struggle of the forces of social cohesion, relegare, remember, means to bind up, making the word religion close kin to the word college, which comes from colligare, to bind together. The history of religion can be seen as the continuous struggle against forms of radicalism, which often display aggressive forms of shameful self-abasement against collectivity. Political radicalism 
is a parochial version of world-despising zeal, a word that derives from Greek zelos, meaning jealousy or rivalry, and often translates the Latin emulatio. What's this jealousy or rivalry or emulation about in zeal? Well, it amounts to the effort to outdo God in his assumed regret at having made the catastrophic blunder of creation. Zeal is, as it were, an attempt to revoke on God's behalf the world. Hermits, mystics, ascetics and holy fools all display and brandish their shame unashamedly and maddeningly against temporal power. Religions have been absorbed in a centuries-long attempt to quell and civilise those minded to turn their shame into existential armature, if not armament, sleeping in middens, licking lepers' sores, wearing dead dogs round their necks, and so forth. I have to say that sentence carefully. The first part was misheard by somebody who didn't, didn't know what could be so degrading about sleeping in mittens. Henri Bergson describes laughter as the response to the spectacle of an organic being reduced to matter or mechanism, making all laughter, in essence, laughter at stupidity. It's less than often noted that he saw the purpose of this not merely as the celebration of élan vital, but also as a social disciplining into flexibility, since he wrote, society will always be suspicious of all inelasticity of character. Among the gratifications made available by our admirably variegated contemporary sexual service industry is humiliation. The many forms which this can take can involve being mocked, degraded, insulted, pelted with mud, being subjected to blackmail and financial extortion, being treated as animals in the form pony play, literally having to pull carriages, and even in an impressively nifty meta-libidinal manoeuvre, having one's predilection for such private ceremonies of abasement publicly exposed. One might easily see all of this, as it's usually seen, as a defence of and through the pleasure principle, a deployment of eros to get your retaliation in first against the dread of every kind of weakness or psychic wound. But it may be possible and maybe more percipient to see in such forms of performable and so perhaps survivable exposure a primary exercise of the erotic itself, rather than as an experience, experience calling forth a merely auxiliary erotism. In his decretal cum inter non nullos of the 12th of November 1323, Pope John XXII attempted to dissolve the legal fiction established by Nicholas III in 1279 regarding the question of the ownership of property by the Franciscan order. A principle which, by distinguishing between ownership and use, allowed Franciscans the use of property that was in fact held by the church. John's argument was that the Franciscans not only could in principle, they did in actual fact own property. And what is more, following the precedent of Christ and his apostles, they should be permitted to do so. This was another 
of the many episodes I've evoked of hectic confrontation between institutional religion and radical zeal. One of the things that annoyed papal officials most about the Franciscans, apart from having to provide banking services for their growing wealth, was their insistence on wearing clothing of a nose-offending noxiousness that actually threatened to bring religion into disrepute. The intervention of the, the philosopher William of Ockham, plying a politicised version of his famous logical razor, led him to conclude that John XXII was himself a stubborn and inveterate heretic on this question. The Pope was not, in fact, a Catholic. In academic life, we participate in something like the genial imposture which John XXII tried unsuccessfully to do away with. In our meekly Franciscan self-understanding, we in the universities, and perhaps especially in the humanities, believe ourselves to be on the outside of power and privilege, and therefore the better able to deploy our knowledge on the side of the weak, the vulnerable, the embattled, and the displaced. This view, I'm going to say for the next few minutes, depends on a weak, sentimental, and increasingly superannuated understanding of the place and power of knowledge, academic knowledge among them. What renders this view of knowledge and this view of the bearers of it anachronistic is the rise of what I propose to call an epistemocracy. I don't claim authorship of this word, which has occasionally been used by others to describe a system of government by experts rather than by the people. This arrangement, recommended famously, of course, by Plato and others, tends to become very attractive at intervals to intellectuals when the people decline for vote, to vote for things that intellectuals or grouping, groups taking themselves to be more expertly informed think that they should or wish they would. And of course this view has been encouraged by recent political developments which, as David Runciman suggested in a piece in The Guardian, has produced among members of the intellectual elite a group with which oddly enough, almost half the UK population, those voting to remain in the UK, seem bizarrely to identify, has produced among members of this uh, uh, self-regarding elite the return of misgivings about the inherent weakness of democracy. Runciman reports that following the Brexit vote, the almost universal response in Cambridge, where he and I both teach, and where the vote to remain in Europe was stronger than anywhere else, except in Gibraltar and the London borough where I live, the response was vicious mockery of those who had voted in this unaccountable and self-harming fashion. Vengeful thoughts and mutterings were abroad. Jeremy Paxman quoted on the TV with relish H.L. Mencken's sentiment that democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it, good and hard. I remember it very much this way, and also remember moronically joining in the booby-baiting game. However, the epistemocracy whose stirrings and growth I think I can make out is a rather different kind of thing, in that it implies not just governments by experts, but the sedimentation and propagation of forms of expertise more generally. It implies the growing authority of the principle of knowledge rather than a, a specific class of knowers. It might be called distributed or dissensive epistemocracy. 
involving knowledge deployment, if not exactly from below, then perhaps in more directions and dimensions than from the top down. Epistemocracy is my version of what has been called by many the knowledge society, a phrase coined actually by Peter Drucker as early as 1969, in what I'm calling an epistemocracy. High-level knowledge workers are, for the time being, the ruling class. I'm sorry to tell you this. You're the ruling class. Even if many of us feel confusingly also like members of an anonymously and humiliatingly toiling cognitariat, this contradiction is in fact a constitutive feature of an epistemocracy and was percipiently pointed out by Peter Drucker in his book um, of 1969 when he wrote that the knowledge worker is both the true capitalist in the knowledge society and dependent on their job. It's not an accident that most university graduates, 25% of whom in the UK we now know graduate with the kind of first-class degree that would a couple of decades ago have seen them shunted into a safely tenured academic occupation, struggle to understand why they're not rewarded with the positions of admired and salaried intellectual autonomy, which they may have been trained to expect. A little more historical understanding might in fact instruct them that it's not at all uncommon for members of a ruling class to feel both privileged and precarious. What, after all, was the Tower of London for? What Drucker pointed to with brilliant prescience in 1969 was the most powerful structural tension of an epistemocracy, the fact that it is necessary for maximum social and economic efficiency to educate future knowledge workers for rapid adaptability, which in fact means educating them far beyond the levels of specific technical knacks and know-hows required for currently existing occupations. Knowledge workers must be trained as rapid response units rather than infantry, able to adapt to volatile needs and conditions through retraining, like pluripotent stem cells capable of being uh, reassigned to any required biological function. No society in the world today can hope to approach prosperity if it doesn't somehow find the resources for rapid and widespread education and training. But such social projects of education can only succeed politically if ways can be found also to manage the crises of frustrated aspiration they tend to produce. If knowledge workers are special forces, it can, as we know, be very difficult to integrate such persons into salaryman society. In order to perform the function of educating citizens for for participation in a knowledge society, liberally conceived universities must work covertly or unknown to themselves, to constrain their own declared aim of producing limitless numbers of maximally self-aware, questioning and intellectually autonomous citizens. In many rapidly developing economies, the tensions which can be produced by a rapid expansion of knowledge and intellectual adaptability are often constrained by focusing investment, a word which in an epistemocracy will always have an affective as well as an economic signification, Focusing investment in narrowly technical areas like law, medicine, 
management and engineering, or at least in narrowly technical understandings of those subjects. In the declining economies of the North, more complex solutions to the problem of the mass production of unrealizable intellectual aspirations and self-understandings have had to be sought. One of the ways of negotiating this transition has been found in the impressively sustained assault on the traditional liberal idea of the universal, unaligned, humanist intellectual. An assault mounted since the 1960s, both from the right and the left, though it would surely have to be conceded much more energetically, ingeniously and effectively from the left. This allows for the annealing of the otherwise unpredictable energies of wastefully free-floating critical intelligence into an evangelical zeal machine of collective social reform, in which everyone is accorded the right and the duty of being on an imaginary critical outside, clamouring for expurgation of a number of mutable, yet at any given time universally acknowledged ills of social inequality, such as the issues of social injustice, against which what looks like the most right-wing conservative government for 40 years has actually set its face in its manifest manifesto, including them, social issues of race, faith, gender, disability, sexual orientation, national living wage, workers' rights, regional disparities, intergenerational fairness, mental health, domestic violence and abuse, school and technical education reform, and migration. The state thereby comes to consist of its own obediently bureaucratised gadflies. It's not that one should object to such commitments. It's precisely that, like the extirpation of sin, they cannot be objected to. To make knowledge over into an instrument of critique in this way turns out to be an unexpectedly helpful first step in instrumentalising critique itself in socially salvific projects. We're seeing that the result is a kind of authoritarian liberalism that can do the work done more crudely in theocratic, post-totalitarian, or frankly gangsterous societies by anti-liberal authoritarianism. One of the signal aims and advantages of this form of generalized, socially solidary autocritique is the systematic exclusion of self-exclusion, the outlawing of outlawry, or the decathecting of the decathexis, which, as is shown by the history of hermits and holy fools that I glanced at a bit earlier, can be such a troublesome byproduct both of religious instruction and of higher education. But campaigns against social sin are, like all such homeostatic arrangements, a temporary abatement of turbulence and very possibly short-lived. The maintenance of zeal, for example, requires the belief that one is part of an embattled minority, whether within a society or within a world in which one is under siege from the outside. And so it tends to run out of jism as it is generalised and the booted and spurred sectarian settles down into the cardiganed Anglican. On the other hand, once it gets underway, zeal is notably zealous informing new occasions and opportunities for itself. So it's very likely that we will see other structural tensions arising from the move to an economy increasingly organised around and replicated through knowledge. In fact, 
I foresee many different kinds of difficulty in managing the increasingly intense and irascible coalescence of knowledge and feeling that I'm calling epistemopathy, feeling about and through knowing. Knowledge used to be conceived as a means of moderating passions of rage, terror and longing. An epistemocracy can be expected to make knowledge their very venue and vehicle. In a society driven by ever more immediate mediations, what we feel about what we know or our feelings about what we believe others do or do not know comes more and more to stand in the place of knowledge itself. Whatever that may be, exactly. A much larger argument would be needed, though I think it would be available, to demonstrate that such substitutions and placeholders for knowing itself are always necessary, since it is so very hard to know quite what knowledge is or really feels like. An antique way, of course, of understanding this predicament was to see the mass media as involved in the effort to mechanise the emotional responses of the masses who could be inflamed or opiated as required by the coolly calculating powers of the system. The liberal response to this project was, of course, education, taking the form known, for example, in my neck of the disciplinary woods as close reading that would supply a lucid understanding or, uh, and the means of critically regulating the convulsive reflexes of ideology. But despite our efforts to revive the idea of the hidden persuaders in the form of the domination of the dreaded algorithms, what's been called by one writer, algocracy, along with the excited revival of conspiratorial comic book concepts from the 1970s like the elite and the establishment, it's clear that in an epistemocracy, knowledge and the theatricalization of knowledge in the educational process <clears throat> must be increasingly assimilated to these collectively mediated passions as their intensifier and accelerator. The coming epistemocracy, unless perhaps it's already substantially arrived, suggests two contrasting, though not completely incompatible, outcomes. One is that intellectual deficit will become a more and more serious source of social injury. Uh, unlike illness or poverty, uh, beyond a certain point, lack of education becomes almost irremediable. <laughs> the identification of the human exclusively and self-approvingly as the sapient may prepare a hell on earth for those stigmatised as the stupid. We can expect power to continue to leak away from the rich, the male, the white, and possibly even the beautiful, always the last unearned advantage to come under investigation and to accrue steadily and in spades to the smart, or maybe the merely fly. The incurious kowtowing to know-how <clears throat> in an epistemocracy may make it harder than ever to appreciate how long the list is of things that are actually worse than ignorance. Cowardice, malice, pride, selfishness, treachery, indolence, unkindness, rage, cruelty, 
addiction, and so on. And how considerable and precious, too, the back catalogue of abandoned human graces and virtues that need have no necessary relation to intelligence, though it would be intelligent of us to honour and foster them. Endurance, courage, resilience, loyalty, fairness, adventure, cheerfulness, tenderness, friendliness, forgetfulness, devotion, generosity, vivacity, joy, sentimentality, hesitation, humour, mercy, care. To this end, it may be important for us to try to become much more intelligent about unintelligence, not least because if the power to shame is toxically potent, the condition of shame, though the most exquisitely painful form of vulnerability, may also harbour surprising and dangerous powers of insurgence, which will make us collectively more vulnerable to militant withdrawals of consent. For the other danger of epistemocracy is not so much intellectual deficit as defection. And the door it opens gapingly wide for intensified conflict as knowledge becomes a battleground, not just as a resource to be fought over, but also as a vehicle to be fought through and with. And epistemocracy may mean the splitting of knowledge into different defecting tribes and dialects, each concerned to stockpile resources, authority and advantage. Epistemocracy may intensify the polarities of the smart and the stupid, but it may also complicate and multiply them. It's important to recognise that with knowledge increasing on all sides, knowledge is power everywhere and for everybody who has it. The sinking feeling that Bruno Latour reported on in 2004 when he noticed how adept opponents of anthropogenic climate change had become at deploying the hermeneutics of suspicion is an indication of how fissile and fractious a knowledge society can become <coughs> as soon as knowledge is not concentrated in a single ruling class. The growing tensions and conflicts over intellectual property rights for example, as they concern drug patents or software or the ownership of music and other cultural productions, are already far too complex and involve too many competing interest groups to be reduced romantically to a struggle between corporations and the commons. In the absence of a willingness, sometimes, often perhaps, to sacrifice truth for peace, it's hard to see what will intervene to prevent the escalation of the epistemic rivalry and spite that had already, even before the election of Trump and the British vote to leave Europe, become a feature of recent election campaigns. In many other nations across the world, the traditional political divisions between religious and secular, urban and rural, rich and poor, male and female, old and young, are coming to be expressed in or simply transformed into epistemic antagonisms, and not just between the educated and the uneducated, but between the differently educated. The Enlightenment ambition of replacing quarrelsome doxa with calming logos 
will have to be given up in the face of such a multiplication of every conceivable kind of doctrine and doxological adherence. The growth of knowledge is likely to take place not just through increasing what individuals know and know how to do, it'll also increase the opportunities and desires for making known. A UNESCO report produced in 2005 called Towards Knowledge Societies urges us to distinguish mere information from genuine knowledge, the latter being understood as information made meaningful by acts of human interpretation, and as such, a public good that should be available to each and every individual. But one can be quite certain that there is no shortage of interpretation by human beings or human meaning-making among Daesh, which, like any group of militant zealots, handsomely meets all the requirements for a knowledge society. We are nowadays surprised and dismayed, although perhaps dismayingly rather decreasingly so, when politics seems to become idiotic by being conducted by people who seem to be idiots or act in idiotic ways. But we might recall that sacred foolishness can, under certain circumstances, constitute a kind of alternative community built on epistemic dissidence rather than epistemic conformity. The history of the Holy Fool, uh, written by John Sawad, suggests that going into the desert expresses a longing to unlearn the sensibility of the age, to be remade in body, mind and spirit, to become truly and without compromise a new humanity in Christ. The holy fool's vocation would seem to be to recall his brethren to their vocation to be unconformed to the world's wisdom. This might teach us that insofar as every idiocy has in fact the capacity to be politogenic and so able to form a polity, there can assuredly be a political idiocy that is increasingly sure it knows what it's doing. Thanks for that. Thank you so much. I'm struck by your use of seem to in the way that you ended that. Um, leaders who seem to act in unintelligent ways. Is that how you would say that's one way of reconciling the rise of political idiocy with epistemocracy? That, that what seems to be unintelligent may not be unintelligent at all. That actually perception plays such a role in, in our judgments of those things. Um, I, I think that um, we know so little about what knowing means. Uh, There's a phrase um, of Nietzsche's um, right from the beginning of his genealogy of morality, which he says, I can't remember the German, but we know so little of knowing, we search as after knowledge. We've taken so little interest in it. How should we come to know anything about the nature of knowing? And I think we are very much in that position um, that, um, I mean, quite apart from the unspeakable fragility of knowing, you know, I, however much I may dare to know in the uplifting Kantian formula, formula sapere audere, I'm only ever a few seconds of um, 
cerebrovascular turbulence away from knowing almost nothing at all. Um, our knowledge is more than ever fragile in a world of delegated knowledges in which none of us even know any phone numbers anymore. Um, we think we know which devices will tell them to us. Um, I mean, in a certain sense, this really isn't a, this is a technological condition of fragility, but actually it points to something um, which is more fundamental, which is that it's always seeming that, that you always, you never know what you know until you see. Um, and even then, that may depend on uh, the way in which you, you take yourself to know, you suppose yourself to know, or are supposed to know. So a huge amount depends on this seeming. Uh, and that, that final phrase was not meant to be a kind of, uh, the idiots have taken over the asylum, they only think they know what they're doing, but they don't really know what they do. They, they don't really know what, what they're up to. Um, because I think that the stakes become much, much higher than that, or maybe on the way to becoming so. Let's open it up. Yeah. Tamar. Thank you so much. Um, I guess the description of it about what might be a potential for kind of disingen disingenuous not knowing, and I wonder whether you talk a little bit about that, because you're becoming an expert on not knowing. So is, is, it, is it possible, do you think, to ever escape that the, the prison house of competence in terms of your own eloquence, so that so that, you know, that that you so eloquently describe this position that it becomes incredibly authoritative. So I'm wondering if that that, that, that the, all the skills we have in the academy produce a defence against not knowing, and so in the end, it's an impossible it's impossible to to not play up the expertise that yeah. you are. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And there's a, there's a parallel to this in a very, very developed um, uh, version of this, this discourse in contemporary psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis marked more and more by the influence of somebody like W.R. Bion and less and less by people like Klein and Lacan and Freud, centered, in other words, on questions of knowledge, which Bion was so obsessed with, you know, was obsessed with trying to work out what actually thinking might be. And the almost bottomless paradoxes of self-reference that come from that in the psychoanalytic context, you know, um, in, in which one, one precisely has to flaunt as an analyst, but increasingly in the kind of epistemic alliance that the patient is called upon uh, to be drawn into, um, there, there, there is this... Um, I think you put it well, a kind of a kind of unavoidable kind of um, expertise in the non-knowledgeable, which is quite like some of these religious um, anticipations, it, it strikes me. Um, and, and the other religious, <clears throat> sorry if I may, just, just was wondering also if the, the kind of, um, is a kind of religious undertone, because of the reference points that you're using and the language that you're employing, yeah. something of the, something of the, um, the preacher, there's something of the modesty in a way of certain of the language of the church, yeah. um, the, 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 the assumption of um, the humility, yeah. all those sorts of things. And, and so I'm interested in what you think are the kind of Christian underpinnings mm. of the discourse that you're. Advocating. But it's not just Christian, it's, it's asceticism 
in general that is of course that there is a form of it in everything that counts as a religion peter sloterdijk's book you must change your life um airily begins by saying there's never been any religion there have only ever been ascatologies there have only ever been projects of self-fashioning or self-transformation and those projects of self-transformation very often can can get pushed to a point of of apparent self-abasement um, which proves to be incredibly potent um, and it's hard not to feel something of the exhilaration of perhaps not Donald Trump himself but some of those around him at actually what he's been able to do it turns out you can be an idiot president and that unthinkability puts us into territory that nobody seems to have any idea how to negotiate um, uh, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to issue any kind of predictions about what happens with that. Um, uh, it's very unstable. I think one of the things that happens is that everything gets more unstable. One of the things that was that's supposed to happen with this thing called a knowledge society, which has been talked about in the most unbelievably benign kinds of ways for the last 20 or 30 years, um, is that um, everything will be balanced. It will be a state of harmony and social composure because knowledge will take the place of all the other wicked things as though knowledge could always be trusted um, to do that as though knowledge had not been at the source of every kind of human hostility um, that, that, that we can imagine so I think we enter in we enter into a, a, a situation in which power turns out power and possibility turn out to be concentrated in in areas that are that are very un, unpredictable Questions or comments? Yeah. You seem to be alluding to the subconscious, perhaps, or the unconscious in that. I mean, you were saying at the very beginning, quoting Freud, and um, where, well, the original phrase is whether it was the I shall be. Yeah. And in a way, you're alluding to that, where what is happening in terms of the process of those. But can you say a bit more of what your thoughts are on that in terms of where that plays a role in? The, 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 knowledge society the role of psychoanalysis yeah. <laughs> well I mean psychoanalysis is in a very very difficult position I mean it's a bit like theology it is a kind of theology uh, psychoanalysis is simultaneously one of the most sophisticated ways we have of thinking about the strangeness to ourselves of the things we know or persuade ourselves that we know for sure or don't know um, and itself completely skewered on all of those fantasies of knowledge. I mean, it seems to me that, that you know, that, that psychoanalysis, like a theological system, is a series of fantasy projections, things that, you, you know, are not just in, in, the, in the trivial way are unprovable, but, but, you know, have exactly that same kind of self-propagating um, structure that, um, you know, theological metaphysics does um, but it's also almost for that very reason because it's in the thick of the very kind of epistemological predicaments that it, that it that it's interested in it's Freud after all who invents the word um, epistemophilia actually he doesn't 
um, uh, is like so many of these these words. He gets a, a posh Latin word substituted for a perfectly ordinary German word by um, James Strachey. Um, but but still, the notion of a kind of Freud almost wanted to believe that it might be a primary drive to know that would be as primary as the life instinct and the death instinct, and certainly beyond thinks that that it's as primary, um, and that somehow. We're not going to know anything until we somehow get into the vicinity of, of that question. But but it, it seems to me that the, that the extraordinary paradox of psychoanalysis is that it, that it is so profoundly, it's so good at analysing the work of fantasy in relation to knowledge because it almost 100% consists of it. Another question. Yeah, and the back, Anna. I think I think that human beings probably many many centuries ago reached the maximum that any individual individual person could possibly know. Um, well before the invention of printing that made the gap between what you could know and what was in principle knowable um, larger than ever before. But I think we reached that that totality, point of totality, a long, 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 long time ago. So it seems to me that we know different things, uh, and it's probably pretty much the same. The distributions are slightly different. Um, there's, um, there, there is this puzzle that's semi-interesting, but very interesting indeed to um, uh, psychologists of intelligence, which is that IQ appears to go up by about 10 points in every generation. Now, uh, many people want to say what this proves is that people are getting better and better at taking IQ tests. Uh, and there may be something in that, but then there might be something that points to. The person who devised the structure of um, IQ tests, a New Zealander called Jack Lynch, um, points to the following effect. He, sa he says, the turn of the 20th century 
if you said to somebody, what's the connection between um, a dog and a rabbit, they'd be likely to say something like, you use a dog to catch a rabbit. By the end of the century, if you ask the same question, you're likely to get the answer. They're both mammals. So there's something about the substitution of, of general forms of intelligence that might actually seem very, very impoverished, and yet in a certain sense, under other circumstances, are much more powerful. So that might be an example of, of a kind of distribution that allows, that makes it difficult to say, do we know more? Do we know less? Um, I'm, I'm almost more interested in, in what we think about all of this, hence this odd word, epistemopathy. Um, here's an effect that I think is interesting. Um, perfectly nice and well-intentioned and intelligent people sometimes very generously ask me to talk about things I've written. This must have happened to lots of people in this room. You write things and people on the radio, or they ask you, and they ask you questions about what you've written. They sometimes ask you about a sentence. And I feel I want to say, what is it that you think I'm able to tell you? about this sentence. I, I'm quite good at reading sentences. I really do it most of the time, like a lot of the people in this room. So I can read this sentence now, but so can you. And actually, that's all I can do. I can read this sentence. I, I really, really, really don't have the kind of privileged access to what could possibly have been in my mind when I read the sentence. I can put together a plausible account of what the putative author of these words, but you can do that for yourself. The subject's supposed to know is immensely powerful. The idea, actually, oddly enough, the idea of the expert. Um, more and more and more experts are people who uh, know how quite quickly um, to cover their shame with some references. Um, and that's not to say it's entirely inauthentic, because I think it was always like that. Um, and it might be, it might be, this actually makes us much more versatile. I think there is. I think there is, and that can perfectly well coexist with with the occasional local sort of game that, oh, here you are, um, you know, tell us about the works of Dickens or whatever. And I can, you know, I'm worse than a second year undergraduate. I can't remember the names of any characters in Dickens novels, you know. Um, Sorry, sorry to say this, but you know it's it's the truth, um, and so um, I think there is shaming, but I think that the act. I mean, we really, really have to separate the work of feeling and projection from the actuality of what people know. It is it is amazing that people seem not to know things that almost everybody knew at one stage, um, but then people know all kinds of things that would not have been knowable 20, 30 years ago. That's why I think it's probably a sort of a plenum. Mind you, the story going around um, Cambridge elsewhere too, I'm sure, on the day after the Brexit vote was, that the, the commonest Google search was, what is the EU? Tamara. Can I ask you, um, just to play a little bit with the notion of vulnerability mm -hmm. a little more in relation to the map that you're drawing up. Yeah. I'm interested to know where the vulnerability lies. Is it the vulnerability of the know-all, or is it the vulnerability of the know-nothing, or what, what, what's going yeah. on there? Yeah, I mean, and I think what 
I mean, in a way, what I was saying is a, a sort of beast with two backs. That um, the first half was very much about the kind of terminal uh, unhumaning of of someone you know who who doesn't know, and that's why you, you, actually somebody who was so deeply stupid as to be really stupid, you wouldn't dream of calling them stupid. Um, it's only non-stupid people would call it stupid, so it's kind of a, a rise. Um, but, but you know, uh, when I went to university, 4% of people in this country um, participated in higher education. It's now well into, the, into 40%. That seems much better, doesn't it? But imagine if you are part of the 20% that don't participate. Aren't you worse off? Everyone else is better off, but aren't you worse off? than you ever were. Um, so I think there is something sort of really quite crude there about, uh, uh, about an enormous and growing and potentially more irremediable gap. Um, you know, what the, the, we, we've grown so used to the simulacrum of full employment that we have that we've forgotten that there is nothing worse in human societies. There's nothing more toxic than unemployment. Um, what are we going to do when there are no ways to redeploy people into occupations? Um, the idea that a, a national guaranteed income in any way, I'm sorry, I have to agree with the Conservative Minister um, who weighed in on, on this question. The idea that, that what people need is, is a wage so they can go to the opera, not an occupation um, but you know the extraordinary challenge of figuring out what it is that people are going to do and how people are going to it sounds wonderful to say we're all going to be much more adaptable because we're going to have lifelong learning despite the fact that we close down all our part-time education opportunities you know because people will remain living and learning all through their lives the fact is that um, that our education system is a once and for all system which leaves people unspeakably marooned, possibly. So that's the first part. The second part suggests that actually, um, that actually, I mean, in some ways it might seem as though um, uh, it, that that argument is actually stymied by the second argument, which is actually that, that um, there will be, in fact, not a concentration of knowledge, but a dissipation of different kinds of so to speak, local knowledges, something that always sounds really rather um, utopian when anthropologists and others talk about different kind of traditions of local knowledge. Um, but they needn't be utopian and probably will not be. Um, and certainly when it comes to, you know, fashioning democratic societies that actually depend hugely on the principle of shared understandings, um, could become very dangerous. So that's a general vulnerability. Um, I think there is a certain kind of vulnerability of members of the knowledge ruling class, as you may perhaps provocatively think I, um, I called it, um, because I think that that such persons will be will become and will feel more marginal. Um, and I think that um, that the um, ugly struggles within academic life are likely to get uglier um, as the resources are differentially 
um, spread out in that respect. Um, all of this is just business as usual, only we seem um, not to be asking questions about knowledge that we ask about everything else. Yeah, although I wonder about the expression moral knowledge. I mean, does moral knowledge not in fact equate to um, a kind of procedural knowledge about how to conduct yourself discursively in relation to moral questions? So isn't it in effect a kind of social rhetoric? Um, now, that would also, that would still be a different kind of thing from factual knowledge. Um, I think, but I think it would be more like the, di the difference that is often employed between the declarative and the procedural. Declarative is knowing that, procedural is knowing how, knowing how to drive a car, as opposed to knowing the dates of the Norman Conquest or so forth. <clears throat> I'm not sure that I quite agreed with your account of where the, where the potential for shame was, because I think it would always depend. Um, I, I think I think there are certainly circumstances in which being held to be a kind of morally illiterate, or the, the other form that 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 we've imagined or invented um, or rediscovered, you know, emotional knowledge or literacy, as it's sometimes called. I think I think you can't have a form of valorized knowledge without the possibility of being shamed if you ain't got it myself. Though I entirely take the point that that um, one of the things that we're really fuzzy about is what we're actually talking about when we mean, when we say knowledge, what kinds of knowledge um, we mean. Even in a way, the fact that we tend to use the word knowledge as though that will do when we, we perhaps would be much better off using a word like intelligence. 
You should be ashamed of yourself. Which is that I was interested in you talking about this kind of tissue or fracturing or kind of destabilizing of both the status of knowledge, I don't know if you see it that way, together this sort of defiance of the unknown mass of the world, you know, from space and whatever, and sort of give that ally to a kind of a sense that where the world's I'm not sure it's going to be any worse than it's been. <laughs> it reminds me of a scene in a Beckett novel where one character says to the other, how are you? And the other one says, I've been even worse. <laughs> um, but so, but I, uh, <clears throat> I don't, I honestly don't know. I, 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 I sort of think we're sleepwalking into um, a condition of not reflecting on things that are really, really important that we're we're putting enormous resources into the idea of the idea that we can that there will be a thing called an information society and we can somehow rescue the information society by making it a knowledge society and that will have to do with everything being in in common you know there are extraordinary naive ideas about knowledge naive ideas that that animate me and continue to animate me have animated me for decades doing the job I do in the kind of places that that I do it, you know. Um, uh, I think I think that knowledge is pretty much the only thing we're any good at as human beings, and yet we're not as good at it um, as we might be. And it's going to become important that we're, we're good at it. Um, but I, you know, no, I don't think we're all doomed. Or if we are, it's probably other things that are going to doom us. You know, I mean, you know, it, it's quite, it seems to me to be quite plain, uh, uh, which probably might be evidence of how wrong you can be, um, that uh, we've only got one chance of um, adjusting our relationship to the natural environment, and that involves technology. Um, it seems as though there is absolutely no, not a chance in hell of us either reducing um, our emissions. There is only one measure that counts, it's the numbers, either reducing our emissions or uh, uh, bringing about the cull of human beings that will be required um, to bring that about. I mean, major economic meltdown is very, very good at reducing emissions. Um, it looks as though the only possible way is the way that at least China has decided needs to be done. That is to say, massive investment and technological acceleration that will put us out ahead of the predicament of the collapse of um, the hydrocarbons on which everything is dependent. So that looks like that looks like a world in which there's just no choice but technicality. Actually, it may very well be that that um, you know people in the humanities 
will need to will, will discover a new role as as it were social symbolic engineers because one of the things we will have to do also is to stay interested in this i won my first prize for an essay when i was 7 for an essay on human population growth it was a prize awarded by cadbury's chocolate i don't know why um, as you can imagine, a very nice prize. My point is, there are things that seem consuming, and then they go away. Not because the problem has gone away. Not for a second did the problem of human human population growth go away in the last, I can now say, half a century since I wrote that essay. The problem of nuclear weapons never went away for a second. We just got tired and bored. But we can't get tired and bored. Of climate change. We do not dare. So there is a role involved in keeping human beings interested. Is that a technical role? I think it probably actually is. But you know there are, there are I think, some adjustments that we'll have to make that, that will change our understanding of what knowledge is. But that's not new. That happens in every generation. Yeah, I think that's true, but I think it's a complicated calculus. So the thing about apology, no one ever used to apologize when I was in my 20s or 30s. It's become an obsession. People say, my mother died in appalling circumstances. It's all the NHS's fault. And what's more, no one has apologized. So what? But the importance of this as, as the reeking of a certain kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, quasi-judicial revenge, or, or whatever it is, it's become important. People have then become very, very expert at apologizing. I was terribly good at this. I was president of the union in, um, in Birkbeck for quite a long time when it was the AUT. And people were always getting very, very upset and demanding that I apologize. And I used to resist it because I felt that I was... And then I discovered it's really easy. What is more, it gives you the advantage because, you know, you, you apologise far more exorbitantly than, you know, than, than it's, it's actually deserves, than the infraction deserves. And all of a sudden you have, you have sort of authority. So I think something of that calculus, I think, is often there. It's also the case, though, that, that people do resist apologising for what I think is an unaccountably long time, I think people ought to take them aside and say, "This is if you develop your apology skills, this is really quite, quite powerful." Um, Mrs. May is is developing her apology skills. The problem is she apologises in the wrong order. She apologises for something and then says, "No, it was all part of the plan anyway." Um, but you know, but Blair got very, very good um, at apologising. Perhaps it was the religion, um, but, and you sort of there's something. Something kind of <coughs> tedious and disgusting about um, these these displays, and there is something shameless about a certain mode um, of of apology. Um, so much of all of this, you know, is is theatrics. Um, our life, a mediated life, 
like we live is a theatrical life. That, that is what seems to me to be more and more characteristic of everything nowadays, that, that, you know, that people are acting things out. And that doesn't mean that they're unreal, but they're, they're theatrical. And, and certainly shame is more intensely theatrical than um, almost anything else. Doesn't mean it's not painful, uh, but it does mean it's more complex. I think we'll give Anna the last question. You're all set? Okay. Well, please join me in thanking Professor Connor.